Broadcasting from the UNMC College of Nursing, get ready for RN Huddle, the podcast dedicated to bringing hot topics for and by nurses to the table. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to RN Huddle. This is your host, Heidi Keeler, coming to you from the great state of Nebraska. And as always, we are still continuing our social distancing here at RN Huddle. So all of our recordings will be from a distance. So if you hear any audio quality variances or anything like that, you can just be assured that uh, we are doing this to make you safe. Well, today we have a very special guest with us. We have Dr. Ted Cislack. He's going to be talking to us about all things COVID and his intense experience in dealing with infectious diseases. He has incredible expertise. And I just know that in talking with him about the things that he's encountered, we're all going to be able to pull some nuggets from that, that we can incorporate into our own practice. So without further ado, let's introduce Dr. Ted Cislack. Hello. Hi, Heidi, and thanks for having me. Wonderful. Well, thank you for being here. I know that you are very, very busy in your interim executive director role of the global health security here for UNMC amongst your many hats and titles. Why don't you go ahead and let our listeners know a little bit about your role here at UNMC? Yeah, thanks, Heidi. So uh, I'll just give you a little bit of background about myself first. I spent 30 years in the army. I'm a pediatrician and infectious disease doc. And I retired in 2015 and uh, took a job working for Phil Smith here in the biocontainment unit and uh, teaching in the College of Public Health. And then I tried to retire a year ago and from my second job here at Nebraska and uh, got talked into staying on as the, again, interim director of health security, as, as Heidi said. And in that role, it's been my job to help Chancellor Gold and uh, university leadership steer our campuses through the COVID pandemic uh, as safely as possible. So being in charge of an entire institution which spans across the state is no small task. And I'm sure that when this broke about a year ago, and I'm sure that you were probably watching this more than a year ago, but tell us what it was like in the beginning when COVID first started to hit and what you were thinking and and what preparations you thought needed to be made to to handle all of this. Yeah, so my thinking and probably the thinking of almost everyone has changed dramatically over the course of the pandemic. And I and probably most of my colleagues have been humbled by this experience and by this virus time after time. We thought we knew what we were doing. We thought we knew what the virus was doing. We thought we knew how the pandemic would play out. And yet uh, we were proved wrong over and over and over again. I told you that I was initially hired to help Phil Smith with the biocontainment unit. And one of the things we did in the beginning was look at, you know, what, what are the criteria for putting patients into this very specialized unit? And uh, we looked at things like infectivity and contagiousness and mortality uh, and the presence or absence of medical countermeasures. And COVID fulfilled all of those requirements. It was a 
a very infectious, very contagious, very hazardous virus for which we had no approved countermeasures. And that would qualify it as a disease we would admit to the biocontainment unit. So when we first heard about this, we started making preparations to move patients, if we ever got any, into that unit. And then coincident with that, some of your listeners may be aware of the fact that we were opening up the nation's first and only federal quarantine facility. So we now have a 20-bed quarantine facility here. And we thought we could manage patients in the biocontainment unit, and we could quarantine exposed individuals in the quarantine unit. And in fact, we did that. We brought uh, 15 passengers from the Diamond Princess cruise ship, in fact, here uh, and admitted them to our quarantine unit. But what we learned very, very quickly was that the horse got out of the barn, got so far out of the barn that these things became quickly irrelevant. So uh, our quarantine facility is 20 beds. Those are the only 20 federal quarantine beds in the country. Our biocontainment unit can hold 10 people. There are probably less than 100 biocontainment unit beds in the country. And so, again, the speed with which this pandemic progressed dwarfed our ability to care for it in those sorts of situations so quickly that we had to improvise and learn on the fly. And uh, that brings us to where we are now, to where COVID patients are being cared for in conventional facilities all over the world. Interestingly enough, our listeners being nurses themselves, you know, they are full aware of the impact of COVID and, and what that means to nursing on the unit. But before things, as you said, at, before the horse get out of the barn, what was it like to, you know, use your knowledge of infectious disease and kind of see the scientific analysis of the virus and in your mind, start walking forward to what could happen. What was that like for you? Yeah, well, like I said, it, it was humbling because uh, everything I thought I knew, uh, or almost everything I thought I knew, proved to be incorrect. And this virus continues to fool us to this day. So a good example, this virus, as you know, is uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. That's the virus that causes COVID-19. And uh, as the name implies, uh, it's related to the original SARS virus. And that original SARS virus first appeared on the scene in China in 2002. It caused a number of cases in China, and some of those cases were exported. And so there was a, uh, an outbreak in Toronto, Canada, and in a few other places. And we continued to see cases in 2003. And then the disease disappeared, and we haven't seen it anywhere on the planet since then. And so I was sort of hopeful that, uh, that this pandemic or this virus would follow a similar course, that yes, it would cause some problems. Yes, it was dangerous. People could die of it, but it would eventually, we would get control over it. And, and clearly that didn't happen. And to be honest, I still to this day don't know why these viruses behaved so differently. If you look at the R0 value, which is the reproductive rate, the number of secondary cases for every primary case, they're actually not that different. Now, there were differences in epidemiology. We think the SARS virus was linked to 
certain cats sold in Chinese markets. The Chinese very quickly banned the sale of those cats. Maybe that had a lot to do with it. But to this day, we're not sure why this virus became such a problem. And viruses similar to it didn't pose as much of a problem. So that is an amazing, you know, correlation between the SARS outbreak and then what this looks like today. You know, our listeners probably would need to understand that with the level of quarantine and and biocontainment that our institution has and the relative few number of capabilities similar to that around the nation, that how we do things, how our establishment of policy and process really is looked to by the nation as a best practice and we take on a leadership role in that. Tell us what that is like. Yeah, no, that's a great question, Heidi. And before I begin with that, I I would echo what you said. These are scarce commodities. There's only one federal quarantine unit in the country. There are only a few biocontainment units. Again, probably less than 100 beds in the entire nation. So these are scarce commodities. And the vast majority of working nurses are probably not going to find themselves working in one of these units. With that said, I would encourage young nurses, nursing students here at Nebraska, for example, to familiarize themselves with them uh, anyway. Because first of all, this this is an opportunity that you won't get too many places. And even if you don't find yourself working in one of these units later in your career, I think you can learn a lot by just seeing how they work and talking to some of the nurses who have spent a large amount of time there. And we look at them not only as patient management facilities, which they are, but also as educational entities and and as kind of laboratories, if you will, where we study the effects of uh, different forms of personal protective equipment, study the, the effects of different decontamination methods and that sort of stuff. So again, while you're here at Nebraska, Nebraska, take advantage of that and stop in and learn a little bit about the quarantine unit and the biocontainment unit. So to get back to your original question, I've partly answered it already. We we learn a lot about decontamination. We learn a lot about personal protective equipment by doing what we do in these units. We also work with industry. So various manufacturers of personal protective equipment come here and work with our staff trying to perfect or improve their personal protective equipment. So we've learned a lot about what the best approach to PPE and to decontamination and those sorts of things are. We've also learned a lot about just best practices when it comes to the psychological care, if you will, of individuals. So when we did have our 15 passengers here from the Diamond Princess cruise ship, we essentially had them captive. They were ordered into quarantine by order of the Douglas County Health Department. They were not allowed to leave. All of them had spent at least two weeks in quarantine aboard the cruise ship before they even got to us. And I think many of you can relate to how small a stateroom on a cruise ship is. So imagine yourself locked in there for 14 days, then brought here, 
uh, and most of these patients were from the West Coast originally, but they're, so they're brought here far from home. They're locked in a room and they're told they can't come out. And the longest of those was in for 43 days. And yet all of them handled it incredibly well. And one of the things we learned was that we held these daily town hall sessions, basically a radio broadcast, kind of like what we're doing now. And, and all, all credit to David Cates, who is the behavioral health provider who set those up. But we would essentially do a, a kind of a radio show with them. And I think by talking to them every day and by giving them an opportunity to talk to us, and we would give them medical news. They had access to the internet and to television, so they could get the regular news on their own. But we would talk about what's going on with the pandemic and what we knew, and we'd give them an opportunity to ask questions. And I think just that little bit of human touch in what was otherwise a very inhuman setting, locked in a room with four walls and yourself. I think that went a long way towards diffusing a lot of the anxiety and stuff that might be associated with being quarantined for a potentially deadly disease. So that was one of the big lessons we learned. Another lesson we learned, I say this kind of tongue in cheek, but two of our guests actually owned a radio station in California. And although I grew to love them, and I, in fact, still communicate with them some, initially, we were, we were kind of taken aback, uh, if you will, because they were broadcasting live out of their quarantine room. So, yeah, so we, I, I tell people that one of the lessons we learned was that you should act as if the media are everywhere, because they are. That is uh, very fascinating. And just to remind our listeners, for those who weren't watching the news every day back then, this was at the beginning of 2020, when the first cases of COVID were being identified, and it was recognized that a cruise ship, which was at sea, that there were some passengers who had contracted COVID. And we're wondering as a nation what to do with this. And what our listeners need to know is that Ted was in the middle of the planning and decision-making and, and really trying to figure out how to best keep not only the passengers safe, but the rest of the nation safe as well. And so uh, Nebraska was a host to the infected persons. And so really, it's been a whirlwind ever since then, right, Ted? I mean, we've learned a whole lot since then. It has, Heidi. We've learned a whole lot. We've learned, made a whole lot of mistakes along the way. So yeah, it's been a long journey, obviously, over the last year. The situation is, I think, so different uh, than it was back then and different in ways that we never would have imagined. Again, back then, we had high hopes of being able to contain this uh, outbreak and limit it to a very small number of people. And clearly, and unfortunately, that didn't happen. But again, we continue to learn a lot. We continue to view ourselves as a laboratory, if you will, for developing countermeasures and protective equipment and the like. Yes, absolutely. And so I think we have time for one or two more questions here. And I know that uh, nurses, after listening to everything that we've talked about so far, will have two burning questions. So the first is, as a physician and an infectious disease specialist, what would you say about the interprofessionalism of the biocontainment and the quarantine teams? What does that look like from your perspective? And then what can you tell us about your relationship with the nurses? 
Great questions, Heidi. And the, the team truly is a team in this case. And I think that's why we've been so successful. So I was the medical co-director of the biocontainment unit. Uh, Angela Hewlett was uh, one of my partners, was the director. I was the medical director of the quarantine unit. So I had some say-so in medical decisions, but we also had nurses who were co-directors. We had respiratory therapists. We had, as I told you, behavioral health providers. And it really is a huge team that's necessary to make it work. We rely quite a bit on the nurses, uh, at least we physicians do, to kind of keep us in line. I have been told many times when I've been working in these units that I did something wrong or I broke containment or I violated the integrity of my PPE. So and that's I'm, right, Ted. We have we have nurse experts in the area of PPE and biocontainment and quarantine procedures and protocols. So our nurses are definitely well trained and fierce advocates for the patients. Right. And I and I want them to tell me when I did something wrong. I don't I don't want to bumble about the unit doing something that might put me at risk and might put others at risk. So uh, you know, I welcome them correcting me all the time. And, and again, the, I think the whole attitude here is one of collegiality and teamwork. And I think that's what makes it work. And the same would be true of the quarantine unit. There's a, and, and there's significant overlap. Many of the personnel who work in the biocontainment unit would also work in the quarantine unit, vice versa. So I, I think it's very completely dependent on that interpersonal structure and uh, collegiality and stuff. I, I don't think we could do it without that. Well, I love hearing that as a nurse. So thank you for your openness. I have two daughters who are nursing students as well. So I get it from them. That's fantastic. They're doing a good job. <laughs> they, they are. Yeah. So I think our last burning question is based on your experience and where you see the variants of COVID and where you see the direction of the disease, where is it heading? And what can our nurse listeners do to prepare and better inform those that they're working with? Yeah, uh, another great question, Heidi. As I said earlier, early on in this pandemic, I, and I suspect others had high hopes that you know, we would extinguish it, that it would go the way of SARS or MERS or uh, other diseases that we were able to jump on and uh, get rid of. I no longer think that. I think it's obvious why I no longer think that. And you hear in the news all the time about these variants. And uh, in the news today was talk about a double variant. And I think we will continue to hear those sorts of things. I don't think those should discourage us, though. I think this is normal behavior for viruses. Viruses mutate all the time. And I think the best example of that is influenza. So we all are very accustomed to getting annual flu shots. And the reason we need one of those annually is because the flu virus does mutate. If it didn't mutate, then the vaccine we got a decade ago would probably still work. And I, I now think that that's probably what's going to happen with COVID. So the, these variants, we need to keep an eye on them, but I don't think they should scare us away from doing the right thing. And the right thing is to uh, continue to vaccinate the population. 
Uh, I do think we will get to a situation analogous to the case with influenza where we may not have extinguished the disease completely, but we will have beaten it down into a, uh, something that's a seasonal event that maybe we'll need a, a, a vaccine for every year. We've been under this enormous, very dark cloud for a year now. But I think the good news is there's an enormous silver lining uh, that's going to be associated with this. So these first couple of vaccines that got approved, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, those are messenger RNA vaccines. They are the first messenger RNA vaccines ever approved. And, and the whole concept of mRNA vaccines was one that had not been proven or validated until now. Now that we know how to make them, they're actually easy to make. And I think booster doses can be made pretty readily to deal with a lot of these variants. And so I think you'll see in the future, maybe we will need a, a vaccine every year, or maybe once every three years or whatever. But I don't think it's an insurmountable task to start building those vaccines. The other bit of good news with this is that even if we can't extinguish the disease completely, we've also developed pretty darn good treatments for it. So if we are stuck with it. If it is going to come back in the future, I don't think it's going to be the, the killer that it was this year. I don't think it's going to be a deadly pathogen that we're going to be frightened about every year. I think it's going to be a manageable virus. Maybe we get a, an outbreak every winter. Uh, maybe we need a booster once in a while, but I think it's going to turn into a manageable disease. So I think the news, obviously, this is not to make light of the catastrophe that COVID was. We've lost half a million Americans due to this virus. But I think uh, that much brighter days are ahead. Well, that is certainly good news. And it sounds like nurses can help with the national strategy to make sure that people are getting vaccinated, educating on the value of it, educating on any other safety protocols that we need to put in place should things change. Right. Um, but I think for nurses who, as you know, were on the forefront of caring for the half a million that didn't make it, and then all of the thousands and thousands that suffered, nurses were right there in the midst of all of that. And uh, it's good to hear a little bit of good news that, that, uh, that maybe you were heading into better days and that that we'll be able to manage it. Uh, we won't have to endure what we did. So thank you to all the nurses out there who took part in all of that. Now, I, I would echo that. Nurses are the, the best advocates for vaccination. Nurses are the experts at wearing PPE. Nurses are the experts at the non-pharmaceutical interventions involved in infection control, things like hand washing and that sort of stuff. So nurses play a huge role in this. They, they need to, if we're ever going to get rid of this problem. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ted C. Slack. Uh, we so appreciate you being on RN Huddle with us today. My pleasure. Thanks, Heidi. And I hope that you would consider coming back to, to see us again sometime, maybe to talk more about some more specific COVID-related information or anything else that comes down the pike. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, that's all we have for RN Huddle today. Thank you so much to our listeners who were so kind in staying with us as we talked to Dr. Ted Cislack, a name that you might not hear all the time in, in the news, but somebody who has been on the forefront 
of COVID and the management of it all through the past year and will continue to be with us. I'm so thankful that he did not retire, that he decided to make sure that he gave his expertise in helping to manage the pandemic. And we cannot thank him enough for what he's done for us. So I hope that you enjoyed and that you learned from this episode. Until next time, we'll see you here on RN Huddle. Thank you for listening to RN Huddle. To stay connected, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at UNMC CNE or check out unmc.edu slash CNE for more program information.